Hi, I'm Lucy, and welcome to the new episode of the London Magazine podcast. Today we're chatting with Matthew Turner, whose short story, Still Life, features in our December-January issue. Matthew is a senior lecturer at Chelsea College of Arts and is currently finishing his first short story collection. His essays, reviews and short stories have been published in Art Review, Freeze, Gorse and elsewhere. In 2021, his story Loom was included in Salt's Best British Short Stories. To start off, I would love to ask Matthew to read an extract from Still Life and to tell us a bit about the story. It was early in the morning and the ceiling above our bed was washed in blue ambulance light. I heard a door banging in the street. Pushing myself up from the bed, in the dimness I could see through the window a man in his pyjamas sitting on a wall outside the house opposite. The paramedics asked him what was wrong and he held his chest tightly explaining in a laboured way that he was a taxi driver. With a limp elbow, he gestured towards a door blowing open in the wind. They tried to make him go back inside, but he told them he'd preferred if they didn't, because it was a complete mess. He was embarrassed, he kept saying. I went over to the window, and while they were listening to his heart, the man looked up at me over their shoulders. Stepping back into her sleep-warmed hand on my back, that was asking what had happened. She told me to come back to bed. I lay down on the clammy sheets and listened as they attended to him, and I fell asleep. The day after, the drawer containing our passports, that to my knowledge had been undisturbed for a long period of time, was left slightly open. I tried to isolate this moment as a specific event, something with a clear beginning and end, so that it's easier to understand, when really... Everything organised itself so gradually that I'm still only approaching the reality of how things were all these years later. The cheap drawer, the chest it was part of, and the room that it sat within is still, despite the time that has passed, well-defined when it appears in my head. Sometimes I suspect that other people can hear its contents rattling around inside of me while I walk through the quiet reception area at work, or on my way home when I'm walking down a train carriage, trying to keep my balance as it sways. Everyone, I think, carries a room like this around inside of them. Our passports were kept one on top of the other in the drawer so we wouldn't lose them. Some days I found it slightly open, others hanging out the cabinet like someone had opened it fully in a rush and then, more often than not, tightly closed, pushed deep into the drawer's enclosure. Observing this closely for a few days, I decided to arrange the pages and the angle at which they touched in a precise and almost elaborate way, so as they would register the smallest tremors from the hands that might touch them. Daily, I looked in there to take readings and check for movement, as a scientist might check an air pollution meter or a surveyor assesses a datum on a subsiding building. I thought also of looking for footprints in a remote and humid rainforest. Cracks creasing the wall were what I expected to see coming from the drawer. Aggressive rising damp, perhaps. Instead, the changes were small. Misaligned edges, a crimp corner, the pages left open at a visa for Puerto Rico, 2016. I thought it was still warm on one occasion. She had been looking through the pages of her passport regularly. 
At the time, I started to track changes in the passport pages. The photographs began turning. I first saw it in the Instagram photos she posted when I was visiting my parents in Birmingham. I could see that she'd turned around any photo that contained me or us to face the wall, and I wondered if any of the 18 people that liked the photo had noticed our room contained just the backs of photographs and paintings, with their hanging mechanisms and backing scribbles exposed, rather than holiday memories, doodles and degree certificates. Flipping them to face the room again was useless. Whenever I went out, even to smoke a cigarette for a few minutes, when I got back, some would already be facing towards the wall again. Thank you, Matthew. And as I mentioned before, um, the story is part of a collection you're working on. Would you like to tell us a bit more about that? Um, so this story is essentially about, I think in essence, it's about uh, moving house and the, the complexities that surround that. You know, people often say that um, moving house is the one of the most stressful things you'll ever do. Um, and I think that is, is true to a certain extent, but also... There's a lot of other things that, that go on around that um, thing. And I'm interested in how spaces tell a story, um, but also how they can tell a story that's false as well at the same time. So when I was a, a lot younger, I was really obsessed with, with crime fiction. And a lot of uh, philosophers and writers, uh, Walter Benjamin, to, to name a, a specific person, talk about the interior as being like a crime scene and that you can read about the person that uh, inhabits that space by reading all the objects around it. Um, and you see this a lot in, in Sherlock Holmes. It's a really classic trope of um, the crime uh, genre. And I was really interested in this, and I'm generally, even though my writing comes across perhaps in a, a really different way, I'm interested in the in the kind of thriller aspect and all these different tropes of, um, of genre fiction. Um, but in terms of the... Um, the detective in the room. I really enjoy this idea that the um, in in Sherlock Holmes, for example, uh, the signs are red, the things and the objects are red within that room, and the reality that it supposes is a correct reality. And I'm interested in how you could read the objects, you could read a situation uh, from the architecture, from the space and the objects within it, and it would give you a false representation of the of the situation. Um, and that's what happens in, in still life, essentially. Um, you get the, the narrator who's grappling with a situation that he doesn't understand, and it's manifested through various uh, misreadings or attempts to read the objects that are placed around that room. Um, and these are themes that come through the, um, through the other stories as well. I'm really interested in how um, the, the everyday can be appreciated in a really literal way for its um, um, for the weirdness that it contains. <laughs> There's also a touch of the haunted house trope to the story as well, where things are being moved around mysteriously, but not in the general sense. There's an actual ghost emanating, but there's the pervading sense of this anxiety and haunting would you say? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say it was um, it, it was haunting, um, and it has again. This is something that I think the whole collection plays on is that there are there are different types of haunting, and while we might think that we um, that we see ghosts and things, um, 
we're actually they're actually manifestations of stuff that we can't put words to or they're much larger than ourselves so we can't actually perceive them in the in the same way um but in terms of what what this character in still life is haunted by i guess it's the um this person that is gradually um uh, drifting from his life and he's trying to understand what happened uh through the things that are left over from that person um and obviously the so i'm i'm saying that um objects represent people and they can they have a, a an extra bit of baggage to them than we sometimes uh um allow ourselves to um to think about um but also that they those things can often be wrong and we're trying to um you know we might keep heirlooms of people that um we miss from the past or people we can no longer be in touch with um but what happens when those things break down and we realize that actually the the things that people leave behind aren't those people and i think the the character in uh, still life is um yeah is haunted by this person but the objects capture that person's absence rather than their presence in his his life and is that a theme that runs through more of your writing as well um yeah so i think it goes through um a lot of the non-fiction and the fiction is the idea that um there's these catastrophes that are a lot larger than ourselves um that manifest themselves through um weird occurrences in life so if you think about um surrealism um tropes like that or this idea that's quite popular at the moment the the uncanny and the weird i think they're manifestations of um really large problems um that manifest themselves locally because they can't manifest themselves any other way in really unusual ways um i.e. through objects through spaces um and i think the uh one of the themes of the short story collection is obviously the in london and this is happening elsewhere as well um is that we're living in a massive housing crisis um and i think that brings to the fore the idea that um a house is not always just a home but it uh it impacts you psychologically as well um and yeah so that's the the main example of that large catastrophe that's then manifesting itself through these what appear to be weird spaces but i think in the stories all i'm doing is merely kind of excavating um the things that are already there i mean the things that even though uh, still life's not based on my life they're based on um things that i've witnessed and seen of that uh, of that thing and i think that you know gen- more generally housing is at the heart of everything um and that uh, pre-factor we had some um really interesting utopian ideas about how housing um can be made and then once we started to think about instead uh, instead of kind of the public good and public luxury luxuries as in social housing um we paved the way for people to just go in for their individual profit and i think that's essentially what the what the what the short story collection uh, is based on is that uh, it's looking at all these spaces that are created what we would call as uncanny spaces or um psychologically disturbing spaces that are created through that um through that decision to go from the public good to the individual good so your interest in architecture and also your background in academia does that play a big part in your fiction writing why why f- do you feel the need for it also 
to take this form of fiction as well. So I think that writing, at least for me, and I'm going to caveat everything that I'll say is uh, at least for me because I didn't I didn't study literature. I've got kind of a autodidacts, um, uh, I, you know, autodidacts have misconceptions about things. I have like the um, a passionate amateur rather than a <laughs> rather than a, a specialist in this in this subject. And um, for me, I just I write about the way that I see the world anyway. And if it links up to these other things that I was just discussing, uh, then that's a bonus. But I think it very much comes back to um, to where I grew up um, and and the things that I did when I was growing up. So recently I was reading. Um, um, I never really understood the landscape that I lived in or why I saw it in the way that I did. Um, but it was strange that there was not much there and things that were unimportant. So objects, these uh, inanimate things became incredibly important for some reason i never understood it so for example in where i grew up there was nowhere there was no logical meeting place so a lot of my friends that lived in nottingham they always met their friends by the left lion which was a great sculpture in a public square but we didn't have to have that we would meet by a lamppost by the council offices um also other things that were very important were um there was some railings um that were outside the job center um, so I hung out with a group of skateboarders, and so that probably influences this to, to some degree. Um, there was also a footprint in some concrete that was also incredibly important, um, and I didn't know why. But recently I was reading um, Gerald Murnane's uh, Collected Fiction, um, and one story in particular stuck out, and it's called Stream System. And it's essentially about a narrator that's in a landscape where there's not much there, and he's trying to position himself in that landscape. And he describes not exactly the same things that I've just described about where I grew up, um, but they're kind of parallels between it. And I found that really odd that an Australian writer would um, give me the tools in order to understand why I saw where I grew up in such an unusual way. Um, so this narrator is essentially in a, a, not a desolate landscape. There are things there, but he's trying to pick out things that are important in his life. And I think one of them is standing so there's even less in his landscape than there was in the one where i grew up um he's standing facing north and then he's standing facing south and he pretty much describes the the view or lack of view and then he describes the narratives that have gone on in that axis um, and by the end of the short story you realize that he's given um he's he's just about managed to position the himself or the character that he, he has in that short story within a landscape that contains nothing and he's given it meaning. And I think that's exactly what I was doing when we were growing up, even though obviously we didn't think about it in those terms, is that um, by giving importance to these inanimate things that are, um, are not actually important, we were trying to orient ourselves or give some kind of compass points through objects. Um, and I think those objects by a, a proxy are the ones that um, people tend to ignore. You know, you live in a place for a long time and you get complacent, uh, particularly in a place like London where there's so much uh, going on and there's so much uh, like a sensory overload is that you miss out lots of things. So if you were to be um, very honest and you were to record yourself going onto the tube, um, the amount that you would actually see and perceive would be about 5% of the what's actually going on there 
and in my writing and in the spaces that I write about, I'm interested in the spaces that people naturally edit out. So if you think that um, still life um, takes place in a in a home, and it uh, if you were to actually calculate the bits of your home that you actually look at, it would probably be like the the kettle, uh, the microwave, a light switch. It's a very small percentage of what you actually look at. And the things that the narrator notices in uh, in still life are the things that you don't usually notice. It's odd, isn't it? Because our homes are, there are anchors, aren't they? The, the things that centre us. But as you were saying, we tend to lack that real intimacy with them. And I think your writing captures that mm-hmm. perfectly. Yeah, so the the theme of of how homes are, they're not merely expressions of wealth or status. Um, they're not. I think the tendency is if you if you were to read a um, house and home or something or in world of interiors, um, you get a lot of stuff about how homes manifest what we feel inside. Um, but I think in the that was the traditional, uh, the more hopeful manifestation of how a, a home works. Um, but I think now we have the opposite thing where. Um, a home is like an incubator for a certain type of of personality, and like you mentioned, it um, it keeps it keeps people precarious. And I think, like in still life, it also affects people's relationships. Um, I'm sure this happens in other parts of the country, but I've ha- I've spoken to people that um, that that come out of relationships and they realise that they only went into that relationship because it made life affordable in London. And I think that is a massive thing that goes beyond housing. It's a, um, it's like a psychological, mass psychological thing that's happening where it's it's not only influencing where we live and how we feel when we live there. It's also um, affecting our more distant life choices as well. This idea of home then that features in your writing, where does that interest come from? Have I put you on the spot? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, I think the idea of home is, and, and people often ask me this question, so they'll, even my students ask me this question. They, go, they say, you're, you're really interested in home. What was your home life like? And my home life was like really idyllic. It was, it was, uh, it was perfect. I think people presume that there was some kind of um, turbulence there. Um, but it was it was it was really good, and um, I think um, and this, these two things aren't related. But I've never felt a sense of home, and maybe that's because it worked. Um, and so I think it becomes an important thing to look at for me, at least, because I I feel like an outsider to it. I don't feel like I need to understand home. I don't feel like I need to be at home. Um, and so therefore maybe I can see it as a kind of onlooker which looks which seems unusual I think usually you get writers saying like Joyce I couldn't write about Dublin um, until I lived in somewhere else because they're an outsider and I feel a bit a bit similar in terms of of writing about home is that I have no need for it I have no don't have any real sense of it Um, and so maybe I can see it as an onlooker rather than someone that's uh, that's in it. And is that even since moving to London as well, where there is this precarity sometimes in short-term rental contracts? And have you ever felt that? I, we were chatting before, weren't we, about strange places we've mm-hmm. we've lived in. Have you ever 
I haven't lived in any weird, weird, weird rentals. Um, so I think maybe what you're saying there, maybe I embraced the precarity of the London property market more than other people. Um, so I could, <laughs> I could, um, again, I could go along kind of not, not unaffected by it. Maybe I am affected by it, but without knowing, but maybe I've, um, maybe my brain's doing some sensory adaptation and it's, um, and it's cancelling it out. Maybe it is one of those blind spots that I was talking about earlier. Um, but in terms of weird places, and I think everyone that's um, that's lived in London for a, a time has experienced some weird, <laughs> weird properties that they've been into in in London. Um, I lived when I first came to London. I lived in a, a garage that I was uh, insured had um, um, been converted properly into a garage, um, but it was it was a completely damp environment oh, no. it was like being in a um a greenhouse or something but a cold one <laughs> um and if you put a piece of paper on the table it would uh it'd be kind of hanging over the edge and damp by the end of the day um yeah and then there was a another house that i was living in for a short period of time i think it was three weeks where um and this became another short story that i think you've you've read or you mentioned um i was living there for three weeks and i only ever saw the so i was a uh, um i was lodging in a in a flat in Camden and I only ever saw the woman I was lodging with twice um so on the first day that I went there I went with all my bags I didn't have anywhere to live because I was looking for a, a flat somewhere else and um I paid the deposit um and the flat looked fairly open it had a lot of room it was quite quite big and then I woke up the following morning and I realized the woman had a, a series of doors that she could close and she could compartmentalize her part of the flat away from the bit that I was living in. And so for three weeks, I only ever heard this person rather than saw this person. Um, and then, yeah, I said bye at the end of it. And then I saw her again, but it was very strange being able to, uh, it was kind of um, weirdly disturbing in a way to just be able to hear someone's movements without, and then you would, your mind would go wild with um, what those movements were attached to. And what they were actually doing and not ever being able to find out. Not that I really wanted to find out, um, but it was just weirdly. It's, it's strange. And I think this relates again back to the uh, how people live in London and elsewhere. Is that I, when you're living in a flat share or you live with somebody else, I don't think you're aware of how exhausting it is and how much of your subconscious is dispatched to deal with things like, oh, someone hasn't done the washing up or there's like weird noises going on. And it's only when you live on your own, which I have done for brief um, periods, is that you realise, oh no, this is what relaxation feels like. You feel like you're relaxed when you're in a, a flat share or a house share. Um, but actually a lot of your brain is working away in the background, trying to stop you um, getting stressed out by uh, some weird noise um, that's going on. It's odd and it also plays into the sense of haunting again, of you hearing this woman but never really conversing with her or... It's, you can feel the trace of someone that never actually have a proper conversation with them. And even if you're living in a flat block in London, you can hear the people upstairs, people that you'll probably never even come face to face with. So again, it's that sense of haunting. Yeah, and I think that's when it becomes real. So I don't, as I was saying before, I've never seen a ghost. Um, and it'd be interesting to hear about your ghost stories <laughs> at some point um, because I've never seen one. Um, but I think there are elements to it that, you know, we're we're not haunted by a 
like a child in a nightgown that's running down the staircase. <laughs> I think we're we're haunted by um, things that we can't put words to, um, and I think that's one of those things that we're we're annoyed by. I think we're kind of weirdly. I have a strange obsession with advertising, um, and I think we're kind of haunted by that as well. I don't. I think most people you ask them, and I, I did some work on this at um, where I work. Um, is that most people think that they don't look at advertising, um, but actually they're again it's another one of those subconscious processes where they're um, they're kind of taken over by it. So, uh, but I think that generally, if people um, think they see a ghost, then they have seen it. They've seen something. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen one. I don't think, but I know Lily has. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I have seen a ghost. Um, so I'll I'll tell you what happened. Um, so it was the start of lockdown in 2020. And I was running with my dad. We'd started doing like couch to 5k because everyone was doing that at the time. And we were running along a main road coming up towards a bus stop where you can kind of, um, there's like an advertisement and you can kind of see your reflection as you're approaching it. And we both could feel someone running behind us and they were faster than us. I thought that I could see someone in the reflection behind me and we both moved out of the way for this person running behind us at the exact same time. You could feel the person and then there was no one there. It was really weird. And because I think because we both felt it at the exact same time, that's why I'm convinced that ghosts are real now. (laughs) So you didn't before? No. And now I'm, you're a believer in the ghosts. Yeah, I mean, I saw what I saw. I felt what I felt, you know? So you haven't I'm, seen one? No. No. But I, I'm i quite agnostic when it comes to ghosts. I'm not completely dead cert that they don't exist. So I feel I'd be quite open to seeing one. I'll probably regret saying that now. <laughs> Do you think you can see one if you intentionally want to? If I try go out hard and look enough, at one? Yeah. yeah. And where would Maybe you I'll go? try that tonight. I'll try and see a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> would you go back to one of the weird places that you've lived in and try yeah. and see a ghost? Well, yeah, you we were saying before. So I, yeah, spent quite a few months living in a bookshop. It was um, in Greece and I was completely on my own. And I'd feel in a bookshop that would be some prime space for some ghost activity, but no, nothing. Nothing at all. No. Very disappointing. I know. So I feel like I'm letting, letting the side down. Well, going off on still sticking with the, the ghost topic, you've also um, published a pamphlet on London's alleyways. So would you like to tell us a bit about that? Because I think, again, that's that's some good space for, for some ghosty activity. Yeah, I, I thought it would be, but I, I visited about during lockdown... So the the um, the alleyway map came out of um, I wrote a few years ago. I wrote um, a short article on uh, one alleyway, and then I I'm, I run now the risk of becoming the alleyway man, which I'm, <laughs> I completely uh, don't want to. I'm, I'm more than happy for somebody else to take on that uh, that moniker. Um, but I saw um, I was in a cab going down uh, Fleet Street. And the cab driver needed to go onto the um, Victoria Embankment. I forgot, maybe that's the name of the road, I can't remember. Um, but essentially, because of the one-way system, you can't. And he took me through a, like an underground alleyway. 
um, that that goes from Fleet Street. It's like a shortcut that goes from Fleet Street to uh, the Victoria Embankment. Um, and I was talking to him about him, and he said that this um, this alleyway or shortcut um, is called the Bat Cave, and it's really famous among cabbies because obviously they have this. Uh, encyclopedic knowledge of all the different um, back streets um, and I wrote about those for uh, for Wallpaper magazine and that was a few years ago um, and then at the beginning of I think it was before lockdown Blue Crow Media approached me and said would you like to do a an alleyway map of London um, and I accepted the commission and then uh, it was kind of put on hold for a little bit um, by myself because I was just too busy I was teaching in um, in Norway in Bergen at the time um, which they also have interesting alleyways, fortunately for me, that I could look at when I was there. Um, so it was put on hold for a little bit, and then when I came back, I started um, really, uh, because there was nothing else really to do in lockdown, um, yeah, uh, exploring a lot of the alleyways. And I literally had a, so I was working primarily on the computer at that time, and I wanted to have something that wasn't computer-based. So I bought an A to Z of London, and I spread it all out like a, um, a crime scene investigation in my flat and literally put pins on all these alleyways and I would um, depending on what the requirement was for how far you could walk at that time I would go to an area and quickly quickly walk around and then walk back to my flat so it was a lot of good walks a lot of alleyways but I've, I think generally why I'm interested in alleyways is, is that in a way they again it relates back to what I spoke about earlier in in terms of spaces that you overlook i think that alleyways there's a lot more of them than you realize and people tend to uh stick to the the open roads um rather than alleyways for various reasons i guess there's safety considerations there and and things like that um but i think generally they they are a bit like fiction um they are these places where um stories become subsumed into them for some reason people like to tell stories about alleyways and i found some really interesting stories i was actually when i was um first wrote about the alleyways i was talking to somebody outside the french house and he um assured me that on um, i've forgotten where it was um in covent garden there was a theater that had an alleyway next to it and within that alleyway there was a very small door and supposedly that was built for if the uh, Dalai Lama ever um, visited the theatre. And I, I could never find that alleyway. So if anyone listening to this... Um, the Dalai Lama. Smile, yeah, yeah. If the Dalai Lama is listening to this, as he often does, um, and knows about this alleyway that was built for him with a small door. Um, but this guy, yeah, this guy assured me that... Um, that it existed but that's uh, that was one of the really interesting things about it because people would um they they kind of tell you about you ask someone about their favorite alleyway and they tell it to you as though they're revealing a secret um and they're like oh i know this little place and i think it's one of those things that if you live in a big metropolis like london you um you cling to these little unknown places i think that's why when if you go on instagram there it's kind of overwhelmed with secret london things yeah. is that people are trying to kind of they're trying really hard to kind of uh grasp onto something that's more theirs than uh all the millions of people that actually live in that place and so i think by doing that and these the ones that actually exist still now there's stories around them 
But I think they also function as stories as well. So when I wrote the first Alleyway article, um, I was teaching in Oxford and there's Queen's Lane, which goes from the main high street back to Broad Street. Um, and it's quite a long one. And it's got all these uh, kind of turns to it. And pretty much when you take each turn, it changes and you see the city from a different aspect. So you see, obviously, it's all round, as most cities are built up around a main road. You've got all the colleges going down there. And then if you go down um, this, this alleyway, you see them all in a completely different way. You see the kind of back of house. You see the, the mechanics of how the city works is that all these things are placed on the main road so people see them from a certain way. But then when you're in an alleyway, you see them from the kind of the, the reverse side or the side where you shouldn't see them from. And then when I was researching that alleyway, um, I came across uh, Pevsner's description of it. And he talks about it as being episodic, is that um, it's split into chapters. So you go down one bit of the alleyway and it, then it changes. And I think that's why I like them. They literally contain stories. So for some reason, people often like putting notes up in alleyways, um, describing their lives. I have the kind of hundreds of pictures of notes that people have left in alleyways so they tell stories in that way but then they also have these other stories that are kind of um classic um myths about london that are usually quite fake so in the alleyway map i didn't bother um referring to any of those i was interested in in how they're shaped and how people perceive them and how people um use them but talking of episodic and i think this relates back to how i got into talking about um about fiction within the built environment and how i started writing fiction is that when i was teaching in bergen around the same time as um the alleyway map was kind of being developed i was teaching about the english landscape garden and not often discussed within um writing but the the emergence of the english landscape garden and i think that the the word picturesque now means that um something is nice um but the picturesque garden was like a really radical um thing um that happened in um in landscape gardening so essentially a picturesque landscape is a landscape that looks real and yet it's not so Stowe is a really famous example of it. And like most parks that you look at, um, I'm not sure if there are any in London, but kind of outside London, you have these country estates and the landscape will look real, but actually it's been engineered to look like an intensification of nature. And um, at the same time as the emergence of the picturesque landscape garden in, in Britain, um, you also had... Uh, Daniel Defoe writing Robinson Crusoe, um, which is by some people, I don't think it is, but um, is is, uh, is highlighted as being like the first uh, modern novel. I don't think it was, but I think it's interesting that you get those two things emerge at the same time. You have a landscape which looks real and tells a story. And I'll go back to the storytelling element of it afterwards. And then you also have Daniel Defoe writing a book that's in the form of a diary that appears real, but actually is not. Mm. And so I think ideas about space and ideas about writing, I think they generally emerge at the same time. Um, so interesting. Yeah. Then also with city writing and psychogeography, do you feel they're very masculine 
areas in literature then. Yeah, I think they, and I, I think this comes back to the the way that different people can experience the city in different ways. And I think there is a macho-ness to um, psychogeography. And I think it creates a lot of issues with um, how people experience the city. So, for example, in um, when you get a guidebook about alleyways, it will often tell you all the grim things that happened in an alleyway. And this kind of, it seems like you're just telling a story that entertains people, but actually you're making it more dangerous for people that might um, that might inhabit those spaces. So if you're going into a space where someone was like um, murdered in the Victorian era, um, then for a start, you're probably not going to um, go down that space. Um, but also if... Um, if something does happen down there, people tend to say, oh, well, what, why was that person in that space? When actually that's not the, it's not the person's fault that they were attacked in an alleyway. It's the, the person that did it. And I think psychogeography and stories about the city um, are not like malign things. Um, they're like, they can be incredibly dangerous um, to the people that inhabit it. So it, for again, I think psychogeography kind of gatekeeps um, who experiences the city and how they do it. Um, but then also I think it's one of these phrases that was uh, made up and was not really needed. I think it is, it's allowed that kind of macho group of people to think, oh, I can walk around the city at night uh, and be safe. Um, when they think they're doing that and they're getting paid to write about that, but actually they're making it more dangerous um, for other people. Um, but I think that, that that phrase as well has kind of spoiled things a little bit for people that do like to write about the city and it's kind of created a dichotomy between, oh, there's people that write about space in the city and then there's people that don't. And I think it's created this thing in uh, a lot of um, novels that I've read recently um, is that people just don't. There's not a strong sense of place and space and correct me if i'm wrong because i probably have a very narrow area of um of reading um is that even if you look at um kind of bestsellers that they could be they could be placed anywhere and again that that narrative that you have in fiction affects the reality as well because you're you're perpetuating something that um if you think that globalization is making you know a city in um in germany look the same as a city here um, then you think you're writing about it in a similar way where these stories could just happen anywhere. Um, then you're perpetuating that myth, you're uh, contributing to it. Um, but in terms of the uh, gestation of psychogeography and how it's developed into something, uh, I, don't, I don't think it ever needed to be there in the, in the first place. There was an incredibly strong uh, sense of place and space in, uh, in novels um, and it didn't need to be, it was already there. Um, and it, it fetishizes it to a certain extent and it makes you think that oh this book is just all about the city and not actually about the characters which maybe it is for those group of writers because maybe they weren't that interested in in characterization or or plot or things like that um but i think yeah it is potentially damaging and you have books as well i was reading hillary mantel's beyond black recently and that has an incredibly strong sense of the outskirts of london um, and I've never seen that discussed as psychogeography. And I think she does a, a better job of capturing a place than uh, any of the normal writers you would associate with that um, group of people. Would you be tempted to attempt to fix, like, fictionalise your alleyway work? Um, I think it does come through in a, in a certain way um, in terms of, you know, 
looking at something that's potentially overlooked um looking at weird because they are weird places because i'm really interested in not places that have been designed but places that have just come about naturally and alleyways do that to a certain extent they're not um no one's sat down and thought i'm going to have this weird route that goes through from fleet street to um the victoria embankment they've been designed by the things that happen around them rather than um the things that someone's kind of drawn out on a page and i think that's how they relate to fiction is that if you think about the the stories in the collection they're kind of incubators for different characters at least the spaces are incubators for different characters then that's how alleyways work as well they're like a character that has been formed by all the other bits of characterization around them and i think that's how they they probably all link uh, together and how i've probably already written about them in a in a different way but in terms of a fiction i don't think they would <laughs> i think people have already been there i wouldn't be that interested in in going towards that that direction so in the way that our homes incubate us the city incubates these alleyways and yeah there's like a, a butterfly effect where you get like a as i was discussing before you get a, a larger political system that incubates a certain atmosphere um and that incubates then the the city and then the city creates these buildings and it kind of filters down and it is it just becomes more pervasive and and violent as it goes down and it is and that's it might sound like quite a strong word to use um but it is it's like a low frequency um uh, violence that it enforces on people um and how they can how they live or how they try and live so what is next for Matthew what are you working on at the moment um so I'll finish the short story collection I'm really close to finishing it and then after that I want to kind of let it um let it lie for a while in a drawer somewhere and then I'll come back and have a look at it after a few months I think It's great well now we would like to move on to the part of the podcast where we invite our listeners to send in their literary dilemmas as we all know writing and getting a break into publishing can seem really overwhelming and quite isolating so we reached out to our listeners in the hope of creating a space to voice their literary dilemmas and ask for advice from someone who has been through it and has experience of getting their work out there. So I'm going to read a dilemma that has been sent in anonymously for you Matthew to ponder and we would love if you could offer some guidance. So here's the dilemma. I'm very much at the beginning of my career and creative practice. but it can be an isolating old journey. Do you have any advice on tapping into community and finding mentors within this mysterious literary world? Okay. Um so I don't know about mentors is a very tricky thing to to find I think in the but I think what can what can help you on the road to finding a mentor is that and this is something that uh when I first started um lecturing at Chelsea one of the other much older lecturers who's about to leave told me this is that you go to um when you go to an event go right go really early so then the chances are you'll be there and there'll be only one other person there and he essentially built his whole career on meeting that one other person at all these events and it's much less awkward if you feel intimidated by a crowd of people you just get there and you go you say to the person oh i'm here early like you 
uh, and then you um, then you uh, kind of strike up a conversation. And I think that's how you make it. I think the aiming to get into the like a big group of writers um, again, well might might not be for that person uh, anyway. Um, but if you aim to get into a large group, then you, you're um, it's gonna yeah, it will take a while. You need to collect your people and people that you like, and don't see it as a <laughs> as a kind of networking opportunity, but see it as people that you genuinely you get on with because you have to think that these the the people around you you'll only be as good as the people that are around you and you need to cultivate a really nice and positive group of people that that think about things in the same way as you else they could influence your your work in a, a negative way so good timekeeping get to places early and that's a good start yeah <laughs> and always meet someone and then for years after i was told that I then introduced another rule that every event I go to, I will meet one other person and just keep it at the one other person because the one other person then creates a, yeah. you meet another person, you meet their friend and then it's it, domino. A domino effect, yeah, yeah. Um, of getting support for your writing. But in terms of mentors, I think that's very tricky to, to get. I don't know if you've had any other answers on that that I can start with. <laughs> no, it is tricky, I think to set out with the intention of finding a mentor. I think it's something that perhaps can organic, um, happen organically. Yeah, I think maybe. so. If you if you get that group of people around you, yeah. I think that will then attract um, someone at some point that will be a, a good mentor. Yeah, I think that's, that's the yeah. way forward. And it's probably not a thing of having one person that's a mentor. You're like your group of people you hang out with is probably a collective yeah. mentor. I think there's that uh, misconception that Writing is a really solitary activity, but I've found it, and I've worked in various different professions in different ways. I've found it the most interactive out of all of them. You know, you're constantly, um, you're working with editors, you work with fact checkers, you work with sub editors, um, you work with, you know, your your friends just ask you what you're working on, and you talk about it. And I don't talk about um, any of my other work like that. I don't think my friends would want to hear about what emails I'd been replying to that day or what spreadsheet I'd done. They just Even want to know, yeah, if you've seen yeah, a ghost lately. I'd be, yeah. I'd be more than willing to talk about spreadsheets all day, but I don't think they want to hear that. We could have dedicated the whole hour to that. It's a shame. <laughs> but thank you, Matthew. It's yeah, been really good fun chatting with you. And thank you all for listening. Matthew's Story Still Life is available to read on our website and in our latest issue, which is available to buy on our website also. You can find us on Instagram at The London Magazine, on Twitter at The London Mag, and on Facebook, it's The London Magazine. Thank you and we'll see you again soon. <laughs>